Well, good morning. That's much better. You're responding. That's good. You're not scared. I don't bite. I'm grateful to be here again, um, here in the middle of August. Um, I just uh, wanted to add a couple of comments to Psalm 119. I appreciate Bob just giving us some context. You know, it, it really is uh, interesting. It, it sits dead center in your Bible. So if you cut your Bible in half, all 66 books, Psalm 19, 119 stands there. And it, it's not without reason. You know, it's, uh, it's the anchor of the Word of God. It's what we hold fast to, right? And um, the second part of the thing I want to remind you of about Psalm 119, you'll see the headings um, there. And when we're uh, in training, in our MDiv, we have to learn two languages. The New Testament's written in Greek, and the Old Testament's written in Hebrew. We have to learn Hebrew, we have to memorize the Hebrew alphabet. And the 22 stanzas represent the 22 letters in the Hebrew alphabet. And that's pretty cool as well. So olive, baith, gimel, daleth, haith, wow. I mean, you go through the whole list, uh, and that's Psalm 119. So thank you, Bob, for directing our attention towards uh, the text of Scripture. Also, one of the privileges I have on the weekend is every weekend that I'm here, we gather um, as, as the elders, and I get the opportunity to kind of lead with them and think through things with them and, and process stuff with them. And I just want to uh, tell you that I'm so proud of these men. They're doing the hard work. And just to give an example, on Saturday, we gathered at Mark's home, I had a meal together right around noon, and then went all the way to 530 Um you know, just working through stuff, you know, good stuff, all good stuff. So I'm so excited to see what God is doing in the life of this church. And I'm super proud of your elders. I just want you to hear that from me. It's a privilege. You don't maybe get to sit for five hours with them. You might want to, um, or you might not want to, you know. Um, But I'm just enjoying that. It's transformational for me, and I think it is for them. And they're doing the hard work of eldering um, in this season and getting ourselves healthy and prepared uh, for our next senior pastor. So that's just awesome, right? I mean, I just want you to know that and, and uh, hear that from me as well. Well, let's turn our attention to why we're here, right? The Word of God. Um, I've hand-selected Matthew uh, chapter 5, verses 13 to 16 uh, for our consideration this morning. Uh, so far, since I've been with you, we've studied what it means to be a spiritually rugged church. And last time, as we gathered, we talked about what it means to be a loving church. And in this installment this morning, I wanna draw attention to what it means to be a salty, well-lit church. You can see that in your bulletin, um, in the flow of the morning, a salty, well-lit church. And I'll continue that theme as I come. I won't be here next week, just to give some context on Uh, I'll be in Florida preaching, and then I'll be back for two weeks in a row on the 26th and then September 2nd, and we'll continue in our series on just what a healthy church looks like, what a healthy church does. I think it's just good for all of us to remind ourselves, and in particular this morning, I want to talk about our mission. What are we individually and collectively to be about? And I think it's encapsulated in Matthew 5, verses 13 to 16. It's really the church's expectation and your personal expectation. It's unusual because Jesus describes our mission in metaphors or illustrations, and it's pretty simple. We exist 
to push back darkness and to retard corruption in the world. We exist to push back darkness and to retard corruption in the world. If we were to talk about living on mission, this passage would, would, would be critical. It would be ground zero for what it means to live on mission. And I think we all want to know that. What are we supposed to be doing? What are we supposed to be about? This is a game-changing, defining passage. And that's why I've selected it for our examination uh, this morning. Also, in the backdrop of all this, as I travel around, both in North America, Latin America, Africa, um, I'm seeing the desaltation of the church and the dimness of the church. And I don't want us to be dim with our light, and I don't want us to be desalted in our expectations. So some of it comes born out of what I'm seeing, and I want to bring it to your feet and lay it before you to consider this morning. And I, I, it's a problem. And so I feel like, for me personally, this is a game-changing text, and for you as a body, it's a game-changing text, okay? So let's read it um, to digest it, and then we're going to give you a bunch of pieces of context as we make our way into this passage. So Matthew 5, verses 13 to 16 read, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its flavor, how shall it, or saltiness, how shall it be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it in a basket. They put it on a stand and it gives light to the whole house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. What does electromagnetic radiation and sodium chloride have to do with the gospel, right? These are the two metaphors that Jesus said will help you understand what it means to live on mission. Electromagnetic radiation, light, sodium chloride, salt. That's what we're going to look at today, salt and light. Now, let me give you a couple pieces of context, right? We're parachuting in to, to Matthew 5, and I want you to be aware of some things so that you'll get the most, right? Anytime we come to a text, uh, a good expositor just kind of rings that text out. Let's ring it out a little bit. Let's get everything we can get. I have like a warehouse full of information. I can't give it to you all because it, we'd be here too, but, um, but I have to say what goes into the showroom. So this makes, made the showroom for you this morning. It's the front part of this portico that I'm building in Matthew 5, 13 to 16. First, let's just talk about the Sermon on the Mount. Let's just be clear. It is Jesus' best sermon. This is probably his finest moment. He's on a hillside. The wildflowers are blooming. His disciples are around, and he's going to light them up. He's, it's going to be awesome. This is his finest moment in preaching, is the Sermon on the Mount. There's 111 verses, but what you need to notice are the 50 imperatives, and there are over 320 verbs in the Sermon on the Mount. All of them circling this topic. What is it like to live out your faith? What is it like to live on mission? So the Sermon on the Mount in total is a call to action. It's Jesus spending time 
with the 12 guys that he's going to change the world with and, and really kind of equip them to, to live on mission. It's very countercultural. I mean, he deals with so many different aspects. We're going to spend our time just in the front part of the Sermon on the Mount, but I wanted you to appreciate the whole Sermon on the Mount. So when you read it on your own and when you digest it this week, realize this is, this is probably the best sermon that Jesus ever delivered. And I think it calls for our attention, right? I think you'd want to go, wow. Like, I need to sit up a little bit, straighten your back, and, and go, man, this is, this is some serious stuff, right? This, this is a Sermon on the Mount. Second, let me just give you the flow of our passage this morning up front. So I'm going to kind of give you the punchline up front. First, you're going to see there's two facts. You are salt. You are light. You are salt. You are light. There's two facts. There's two observations. If you lose your saltiness, you become ineffective, And if you hide a lamp in your house under a basket, it's ridiculous. That's the point. These are the observations from this text. And then there's one imperative. We are to be the salt and light of the world. Notice how he frames it, though, geographically. He doesn't say, you're the salt of Palestine. He says, you're the salt of the whole earth. And then he says, you're the light of the world, verse 14. Not just our local community, not just Applegate and this community around us, right? You're, you're the, you're, the expectation for the church and for us living on mission, our, our mission field is the whole world. Our saltiness affects the whole earth. Influence. It's a big call to impact and influence and not just locally, but globally. So it's huge. Third piece of context Notice what's in juxtaposition. Remember, when you, when you study the scriptures, context is king. Notice the context. Notice what precedes the Sermon on the Mount. Notice how he opens this fantastic sermon. He opens with the Beatitudes, the eight Beatitudes there. Look at verse two. And he opened his mouth and he taught them. And he said, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So what he does in verses 2 through 11 is provide the identity of a true disciple of Jesus Christ. This is what a true disciple of Jesus Christ looks like. And I'm telling you, it's a profound picture. It's countercultural. It's opposite. He says, no, you're not wealthy. You're actually poor in spirit. Those who mourn, they're, they're the ones that get comforted. It's, it's quite opposite to what you might think, Right? And so what he does is he defines the identity of a true disciple. And here's the point. You can't do 13 to 16 without being 2 to 11. Do you see the connection? You want to connect the context. So it just isn't this haphazard points in a sermon. He's going somewhere. He says, this is who you are in Jesus. This is the, the marks of a true disciple. And then he says, this is what a disciple looks like. And then he goes into 13 to 16 and says, this is what a disciple does. This is how to live out your faith. This is, this is Christianity in street clothes. This is what it looks like in the dusty roads of Palestine or in Applegate Valley. This is what it looks like, right? I love it. Because he opens up with, blessed are those who are poor in spirit. How does that affect us being salt and light? I'll tell you how it affects us. We don't look down at unbelievers, right? It's one beggar 
telling another beggar where to find bread. That's the posture. That's the attitude of our evangelism. That's the attitude of being salt and light. It's not that we're superior and we're elite Christians and we're professional Christians. No, these are ordinary men, fishermen. And he said, it's one beggar helping another beggar find where food would be or where his bread would be, his next meal would be. And we shine and we are salty to point to Jesus that the Father may be glorified in all of it. So again, notice the context. You can't do 13 to 16 if you don't have locked down 2 to 11, all right? So maybe that's for some homework with your families. With your kids, let's go through the Beatitudes. Go through the eight with them and, and just walk through and say, hey, that's who you are as a disciple. Now what does a disciple do, right? This, I mean, we, we, we should ask the question, what should we be about? Next piece of context. You're gaining appreciation. I can see it in your eyes. Next piece of context, there are no secret Christians. There are no secret Christians. If you were just here to be saved, then God would save you and save many of you. He would save you and he'd give you a long weekend, maybe a Labor Day weekend to go say goodbye to family, loved ones, children, grandparents, relatives, right? And he'd take you on to heaven. If that was your only purpose... It doesn't stop there, though. He saved you unto good works, to, to be salt and light. This is mission. This is why you're here. Your raison d'etre, the French would say. Your, your point of why you're here, the existence of why you're here, it is defined as salt and light. And two metaphors, which we're going to unpack for you and what they mean in a second. So you're not here as a secret Christian. Right? Or there are no CIA Christians. We can't hide the gospel. Matthew 28 says, go, right? Not sit, not hide, not put camouflage on, but go and make disciples, right? Our lives are, and our words are to proclaim Christ. He says, we're the light of the world, we're the salt of the earth, not just Palestine. Not just local, but actually global. You're not called to either be a pen light, you're called to be a mag light. That's the kind of light, brilliant. That's why I said a salty, well lit, or the word brilliant, brilliantly lit, right? LED level lit, right? Not old incandescent. And let me remind you, for some of us, you're the only salt and light some people will ever see. I'm going to run into people next week that you'll probably perhaps never meet. And so it's my obligation and my expectation to be salt and light to them. You live in communities. You work someplace. You go to certain, you frequent certain shops, certain coffee shops, certain uh, clothing stores, wherever it might be. If you're in Grant's Pass, then that's your mission field right now, right? And you're you're not just there in that neighborhood or that community by chance. You're sovereignly, providentially placed there to be salt and light. So you have to read in the sovereignty of God, wherever you're at in the marketplace, wherever you're at in church. And so we're to preach the gospel and we're to evangelize. When I get on a plane later today to head back to, to Kingsburg, I'm thinking, who's going to sit by me? You know, and oftentimes I'll tell them, like, hey, you want to hear a story about a really bad guy? 
And like, who doesn't want to hear a bad story? You know, like, and they usually go, yeah. And I just basically share my testimony. And they go, who is that? And I said, well, that's me, sir. Or me, ma'am. And I'm right into the gospel, right? They're locked down. They can't go anywhere at 32,000 feet. Where are they going to go? That's why I need to be on fuego, right? I need to be on fire and, and sharing the gospel. So I just want to remind you, footnote, there are no secret Christians. This is all of our exhortation. If you claim 2 to 11, then you do 13 to 16. It doesn't mean you shine as brightly as you could or want to, right? We all have our moments of dimness. Um, I, I get that. I do too. Even moments of embarrassment, whatever. Like we have these moments, but the call, I want you to see the, the high bar, the expectation that Jesus gives here. Fifth piece of context, and we'll jump into the text. You'll see it's a twofold mission of every Christian to push back on darkness and to slow the decay that's in this world. You see, what he's talking about is evangelism. Evangelism was Jesus's priority. He said it in Luke 19.10, did he not? I come to seek and to save that which was lost. So if it's his priority and his mission, it probably ought to be the church's, right? And, and our personal mission as well. And he told his first disciples, on that morning when he saw him out fishing, he said, guess what? I'm gonna make you fishers of men. You're killing it with the tuna boat, right? I mean, you're killing it with the tuna boat, Danny, but let's go on from there. It's, you're gonna be fishers of men, right? And then he says in Proverbs, he that wins souls is wise. Romans 10 says, how will they hear without a preacher? You're the preacher, it's not, this isn't just preaching. You're doing it how you live and with your words and with your life. Every time you go to the gym, every time you have opportunity to share Christ, you're salt and light. And we're to live boldly on mission as Proverbs 28.1 says, right? The righteous are bold as lions. And here's the deal. There's no plan B. You are plan A. There is no other plan. He, God always took ordinary people and did an extraordinary thing in changing and transforming people's lives. And we are the ordinary ones that God uses, right, to be salt and light. So you're a plan A of God. That's awesome. That, but it comes with some responsibility, right? Some influence. We're that royal priesthood that Peter talked about, right? right? Proclaiming the, the excellencies of Christ, so with that in mind, those five pieces of context, you ready to get busy? Ready to go? We're just getting going. The flywheel has begun. All right, let's look at the text before us. And again, there are two points. First, you're to slay deca uh, slow decay. And second, you're to push back darkness. So you can write those down. And then let's fill, in, let's fill in them with some content. What does it mean to live on mission? First place we need to look is verse 13. You are the salt of the earth. So what it means to live on mission, it means to slow decay. The reason why I'm using the word slow is that you can't stop the decay. Second Timothy 2 reminds us that the world is going from bad to worse. It's unwinding. So since Genesis 3, decomposition is in play, right? As you age, you don't function quite as fast as you used to function, right? Just things change. This also, as you approach this, is not for super Christians, it's not for pros, it's not for the pastors or just the elders, this is our collective 
responsibility and expectation. Remember, the guys that are sitting on the side of this hill listening to this fantastic sermon are uneducated fishermen. I mean, they're, they're hardworking, gritty, tat, tatted up kind of guys. Uh, fishermen, right? Salty, we'd call them. They're a little salty. And uh, they get it. So this is the expectation for them. It's also the expectation for, for each of us. It's also an indicative. You are. It's a matter of fact. It's not like elective. It's not like, oh, if I arrive as a growing Christian or a super Christian or I get more of the Holy Spirit or more filling, then I'm going to then engage in mission. No, no. He just says, in fact, you are, you are the salt of, of the earth, right? You, you can do this because there's the expectation. It's possible to act like this and live like this. It's possible to do that. And there's the expectation that he will do it through you. So again, we can't discount the passage. We can't um, subvert it or under, under, you know, deliver it to you. It's the way it is. It's a fact of life. If you claim Christ, then you are salt. If you want to know what you're supposed to be doing, you tell people, say, hey, what are you up to? I'm salt. I'm light. That's what I do for a living. This is my job. I just happen to do that at this store, or this construction site, or et cetera, right? We're to be salty believers and influence the world that's around us. So, how the world is viewed is important. Your worldview. The worldview is this, from bad to worse. We go from decomposition. 2 Timothy 3, 13 says, evil men and impostors will proceed from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. So this degeneration is the picture. It's the backdrop here. Sin festers. It putrefies. It brings about decomposition, right? I'm not a fatalist. It's just the way it is. It's just since Genesis 3, we've live in, we're living in this fallen world. And as we look at the end times and our eschatology, it's going to get worse and worse and worse as we approach that time. So the world apart from Christ continues to decompose. Yet we're put in there. We're placed in the world, we're taken out of the world, say, put right back in to retard or to slow this decomposition. Just like Noah was in Genesis 6, 5, when God looked at the earth and all the sin, he puts a man there to, to draw attention to that. So we're the ones, and I love the text because in the Greek text, it's in the emphatic position. So let's read it differently, that first clause. He says, you alone are the salt of the earth. It's emphatic. You alone are the salt of the earth. You, all of us here this morning. We are the world's salt. And again, sometimes the only salt that somebody will ever meet or see is your life and your proclamation. So what is he talking about? Sodium chloride. You're the sodium chloride of the world. What? Why that? Why that metaphor? Well, I think we need to dig in a little bit. Let's double click a little bit here and say, let's figure out what it means because it's going to bring color and, and brilliance to our conversation. So when you think about salt, you probably don't have an appreciation. I don't have an appreciation for what Jesus meant. Why? Because we have refrigeration. They didn't have refrigeration in the first century. And uh, things were not preserved well. 
They would deteriorate. They would decompose quickly. And so salt became a, a valuable commodity in the first century. So much so we know from first century writing around 110 AD that it was recorded in extra biblical writings that soldiers were often paid in salt, a bag of salt. They wouldn't get currency. That salt was so valuable, similar to gold today, right? If you hold gold as a position in, in your investment strategy, right? It's, it's value. It's a, it's a real commodity. Well, salt was, uh, was extremely valuable. Now, when I think of salt, I'm thinking French fries, McDonald's fries. Is there any contestation that McDonald's French fries are the best French fries, you know? I appreciate In-N-Out, but they just, they just don't hold up like a McDonald's fry, you know? Or on your broccoli, the devil's vegetable. You know, you put salt on that thing to make it better, right? It brings out better taste, right? We use it in our language all the time. So say a guy's underperforming at work. We'd say he's not worth his what? Salt. We're lazy too. <laughs> I'm sorry for you. Um, so it's, it's like, that's the deal. Like you, 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 salt was even a, a descriptor to say, if, you, if you're not holding up your end of the bargain, if you're not performing at, at, at the level you're supposed to perform, they use that metaphor with the soldiers. And say, you're not worth, he's, he's a soldier, he's not worth his salt, right? I don't know if you've ever noticed this. Leonardo da Vinci, the Last Supper painting. I want you to go look at it. You can do this afternoon, go to the Googles and look up in the Googles, you'll see it. And um, you'll see there's a salt chalice tipped over in the painting. It's because of the value of salt. So he's holding a bag, which would be the money that Judas, it's a picture of Judas Iscariot, holding the bag of money that he exchanged for Jesus' life. And this chalice, this, this, this cellar, they call it S-C-E-L-L-A-R, the salt shaker laid over. Why? Because he, he's defying, right? It, it, it's bad luck. It's an omen to waste salt. You would never waste salt, right? That's why sometimes we say, take it with a grain of salt, right? We use salt. Salt was extremely valuable um, commodity. I just want to put that before you because it helps you in your interpretation of this particular, particular text. So it's not a condiment. He's not saying, hey, I want to remind you this morning here in Applegate that you're the condiment of the world. No, it's not a little packet. That's not what they're talking about. But there's some options for us in interpretation here. So let's, let's think through the different options. I think there's three primary options you could take on the interpretation. We're going to choose the third, okay? First, it could be that it is a flavor. Um, that's how the ESV kind of used taste in there. It could be that we're to enhance flavor. I, I, think, that's a, I think that's true, like we're to be um, tasteful. When we share the gospel, we're to be a tasteful spice. Uh, Paul used an aroma, a smell, a fragrance, right? There, there's something there, and I think it's true that you should be tastefully proclaiming the gospel. It's just not true in this passage. Does that make sense? So it's true, and I think you could say, hey, you're to have tasteful presentation and proclamation of the gospel. No questions there. But that's not what this passage is talking about. Second, um, some would say it, uh, in interpreting this passage, it's about thirst. Salt creates thirst. Um, that's why when we talk about salt now, it's either really good on your fries or your doctor says what? Hey, lower your salt, right? Some of you are crazy. I know some of you guys, I'm looking at you, the beady eyes. I know what you're doing. You're, you're salting your food before you ever have tasted it. You're so addicted like I am. I put it on. I need, my wife says, you haven't even tried it. I'm like, 
I just know it brings out my flavor and my steak, right? It enhances it. We all know that. I mean, that's just part of the deal, right? So, yeah, so does, does, should we create a thirst in people's lives for the gospel? Yes. Is that what this is talking about? No. It's not what the interpretation is. It's not what's going on here. These are possible explanations. They're true. They're just not in this passage. But we've got to be faithful to this passage. So what in the world, context is king, what is Jesus talking about? Salt in the first century, its primary function was to stop decomposition and the preservation of meat in the absence of refrigeration. That's what's going on here. They didn't have that. They couldn't preserve things. So if they slaughtered an animal for feed, for, for, for their food, they, they didn't, you know, couldn't keep it. And so salt was the mechanism they used to stop the decaying. And, um, and humanity without Christ, as we know, is, is going to putrefy. It's going to decompose, right? And so we're called to be the salt of the earth, So the presence, here's the deal, the presence of authentic disciples, 5, 1 to 12, should retard or slow the culture of spiritual decomposition. That's what I think Christ is trying to teach us. Salty believers act as a retardant to moral decay in society. This has always been true, right? You're called to not just be a Christian, you're called to be a salty Christian, and so we influence. Um, we, we become the culture's conscience. This has always been true. It's believers and the truth of scripture that we promote honesty. We say you ought to tell the truth. Why is that? Because that's what the Bible says and as Christians have promoted that down through the centuries, it's a fact, right? We're, we're the salt of the earth saying, hey, when you, when you speak, tell the truth. We promote honesty. We prize integrity, that your character has to be commensurate you know, with, with, with how you live your life. You, you can't proclaim something and not have character. You have to have, be an example. We encourage hard work in the culture. That's the Judeo-Christian work ethic. The reason why men work hard and women work hard is because of the Bible. We promote those things. You don't work. Paul says in Thessalonians what? You don't eat. It's real simple. You get hungry enough, guess what? Pick up a shovel. That's how this works. We, we promote um, punishment, right? If, if, if there's been a crime, there's a punishment that fits the crime, whatever. So all of that is coming from truth, from the scriptures, from being a salty people that we hold fast to, 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 to the truth. So we, we exist to quicken the conscience of the world, not by condemning it, not by being mean, not by hating the sinner, but with winsomeness and tastefulness, we are called as a church to slow down and to retard the decomposition. That could look like a million things. That could look like going to the library and saying, why are these books in our public library or in our school system? Or it could look, there's a thousand expressions of what believers have done throughout history we call sin, sin. Let's just call it that. That's our job, right? We're, we're to be the salt of the, the earth. We're the, we're the living conscience. We're the living conscience to a, a deteriorating world. And so that's why Jesus says, hey, you're the salt of the whole earth to slow it down. But then he says, if salt has lost its flavor, its profile, its purpose, 
how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Well, this is documented in history as well. They would not take the, the salt that's lost its saltiness, right? They would, they would take it out to the dusty roads and they would mix it in with the rain and it would be part of the, the foot traffic. They wouldn't throw it in their agriculture. They wouldn't throw it in their, their fig tree. It would kill the fig tree to put that kind of level of salt. So that salt, sodium chloride, turns into gypsum. It's no longer useful. And so it states you go out and you discard it in the street. And that's what they would do. That's how would they dispose this particular mineral. And it's a reminder that salt is an extremely stable compound, but if it loses its saltiness, it really becomes ineffective. And do you see the point? If we're not out being salt of the earth, we are in effect desalinated. We're desalted. We're undistinguishable from this world, right? First John 2, we're undistinguishable. We're not making an impact. We're not influencing. We're not driving people uh, to the gospel of Jesus Christ. So there's a dilution. And that's what I'm seeing in the church. People taking it in, absorbing, feeling it, listening to truth. But we're not becoming salt. And I'm here to remind you, as Jesus did in his sermon, you are the salt of the earth. And you can do it. And this is what it looks like. So if you claim the Beatitudes to be true of your identity, then it's going to work itself out in its practice, right? You don't want to be ineffective. You want to be used by the Lord, right? You don't want to be said, well, that believer is not worth its salt, as they would say of a Roman soldier. We want to be valuable. We want to be used of the Lord. And this defines, as the first metaphor, this defines our mission. We're to influence everyone around us with the gospel of Jesus Christ. We are called here at this church to be a salty community of believers. And if you this morning perhaps need to be resalted, right, then get resalted through repentance, through faith, through understanding your mission, through talking to your neighbors. I mean, I'll talk to you how you do that at the end. I'll give you a little bit of help. I'll give you a little bit of a runway, okay? That's the metaphor. Metaphor number one, fact, you are the salt of the earth. If the salt loses its property of saltiness, then it's useless. It's, it's ineffective, right? We don't want to be that. We want to be the salty, well-lit church in this community, in this valley. But he goes on. That's the first metaphor. Let me give you the second metaphor. He says it there in verse 14. Look at it. You are the light of the world. You're called to brilliantly reveal Christ. Not only to slow decay, but to actually push back the darkness. You're the light of the world. You're to illumine In a dark and decaying world, you're to illumine Christ. We're called to be the light of the world. Not a pen light, like I said earlier, but a mag light. I mean, lots of illumines were to throw off. Both metaphors have the same purpose. Gospel influence. Gospel impact. It's a fact the world is shrouded in thick darkness, right? Thick black darkness. And as you read the news and you look at culture, you're probably coming to that same conclusion on your own. And we know 
from John 3 that men love darkness more than they like light. They don't like light. They don't love light. And so he says, listen, you're going you're to be the light of the world. And he's kind of saying, can you imagine a world without light, without watts, W-A-T-T-S? Can you imagine a world without the privilege we have this morning of sitting under these lights to look at our Bibles? I'm often reminded of, of like Luther and Calvin when I would tour through Germany and I would go to like Vortburg Castle where, where um, Luther would write, but he'd have to write by candlelight with quill and dipping his pen, the, the modern inconvenience. He didn't have a MacBook Pro and, and uh, word processing and all that kind of stuff, uh, you know, printer. Like, you made an error, and you're like, oh, crud. You know, I gotta go back and redo the whole thing. I mean, it, it was laborious and hard, and it, no light, no sewers, no nothing, you know, like nothing. And so when Jesus says, you're the light of the world, well, it's similar because his context is the first century, as salt was a valuable commodity, so was light. And he gives two different illustrations of light or poor light. First, he says this. How about a city set on a hill cannot be hidden? A city on a hill was his first illustration of what it means to be the light of the world. Well, in ancient times, cities were built strategically, right? Some of you are in construction, you think about these things, you, you know this, but primarily a city built in the first century was built for protection. Protection from the elements, flooding, etc., but also protection from enemies. So they would build it up, put the moat around it, you know, so it was hard to access. It wouldn't be easily invaded, and the, the elements around would not, in the rainy season, consume the city. And so he says, you're like a city on a hill, That city on a hill became a marker. One of my favorite cities is in southern Italy on the island of Sicily. It's called Taormina. Taormina is this huge city on a hill. You can see it anywhere on the island. You can see it from from anywhere in in southern Italy. It's just up there. It's a first century city up up on a hill. Well, it's directional partly, right? Off in a distance, you're trying to make your way there. You don't have a flashlight. You don't have a mag light. You have to make your way to that city. And at night, those flights flickering from candles and gas lamps would, would be there. And you would know directionally where to go. In the daytime, you could see it. At nighttime, you could see it. It, it gives direction, right? People could find their way. John 8, verse 12. Jesus said, I am the light of the world. He who follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. Light's a big deal in the first century. Light's a big deal with Jesus. And now he says, you're the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Jesus is the glowing, brilliant light of life. And he's asked you, as a follower, to shine brightly, to put the spotlight of the gospel on display. You are the light of the world. Dr. Barnhouse, 1950s, said, Jesus is the brilliant noonday sun, and when the sun sets, the moon comes up. But it has no source of light in and of itself, but rather reflects the sun's light. That's very similar to what you're seeing here in Matthew 5. 
Verse 14, you're a reflection of the Son of God who is the light of the world. You're to display the light. Jesus is the epic, consistent light, but we're to reflect that light. And so that's what a disciple does. 5 to 12, they are the salt of the earth. They're the light of the world. But then he goes on and says, let me give you another metaphor. So he talks about being a city on a hill. That's off geographically in the distance. And they would all know that. And they would know how cities are built. And they'd go, okay, so we're like that amazing city in Palestine on the hill. Got that? But he says also, to speak to its usefulness, he, he goes inside a house. Now, they wouldn't have glass windows and like you might in a picture window looking out to the valley floor here or to some farming. They, they wouldn't have that. It would be enclosed. So nobody would take an expensive oil lamp, buy expensive oil, light the lamp for their family, and then put a basket over it. Now, crazy enough, we do that today, don't we? Call lampshades. Because we use light. We don't think about it like this. We're, I, I mean, we got, I've got mood lights. I got string lights in my yard, right? We, we, we turn certain lights on. We have dimmer switches. Like, we don't appreciate When Jesus said this, listen, that oil was valuable. It was a serious commodity. And nobody in their right mind would light a lamp to, to serve the whole family dinner and to serve the whole family getting ready for, to go to bed and then put it under a basket where it couldn't be seen. He says, that is absolutely ridiculous. Well, what is equally ridiculous is someone who claims they're in Christ but doesn't shine. See what he's saying? It's equally ridiculous. Like, that's what he's trying to say. We, you would actually, uh, a, a dad or a mom would strategically place that light probably on a stand, which it says here, a lamp stand, and they would strategically place it in the middle of the living room so that everybody could get and enjoy a piece of the light. It provides light for everyone. Nobody would do that. Ladies probably know Proverbs 31. It's a Proverbs 31 woman. One attribute of the Proverbs 31 woman was what? She doesn't allow her lamps to go out. Serious stuff. Doesn't allow it. Visibility was absolutely important. It was one of her duties. She felt pride in making sure she provided the oil for the lamps so everybody could see at night. There were no windows. There was no outside light coming in in the first century. And he says, listen, you're like the city on a hill and you're like You're like a lamp placed strategically in the middle of a house, influencing everybody's visual perspective. And if you are not doing that, that's crazy. Nobody would do that. The light of Christ is revealed. When you're on mission, you're revealing the light of Christ, right? It's a command there. Look at verse 16. In the same way, Just like he said, just like the light and just like the salt, in the same way, let your light shine before others. And they're going to see your character, your good works, and they're going to give glory to God. They're going to look right through you and they're going to see Jesus. And that's what we want here at a local church, right? It's kalos. It'll make you attractive, good. It's brilliant. It's good works, kalos works, attractive works. We reveal Christ in how we live by demonstrating character, by living an exemplary life, by showing compassion to our crazy neighbor, right? And crazy buck, he keeps moving that lot line and you gotta keep loving him. And hopefully you're not crazy buck. Right, what he's saying is you're giving the gospel credibility, right? You're salt and you're light. And when you live in such a good way, 
kalos in such a good way, it brings credibility to the gospel. Why? Because it's gonna get messy, folks, and it's gonna continue to get messy. And here's the deal. The darker it gets, the brighter the light shines. You ever been in real pitch black? And I'm in Africa preaching in those villages. It's crazy how dark. You cannot see your hand in front of your face. And when someone lights a small candle or a match or something, a piece of charcoal, it's like, wow, look how much you can see. It's, It's incredible. So the darker it gets, the brighter the light shines. Don't recoil from the darkness. We read the commentary. We we watch Fox News. Don't get all freaked out. You're the light of the world. You're the salt of the earth. You're plan A. There's no other plan. It's you, Uncle Buck. You are plan A. This is awesome. Like, this is what it is. We're to brilliantly shine as lights in prevailing darkness. Prevailing darkness. And there are no invisible believers, no CIA Christians. We're all in this together. Only authentic disciples as seen in Matthew 5, 3 to 12 there. We're to, we're to shine brilliantly, brilliantly. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, we call him the doctor. He's a famous expositor. He says, we find in ourselves a tendency to put the light under a basket. We must begin to examine ourselves and make sure What we really have is light. That's fair. That's an application. If you're not brilliantly shining and well-lit and salty, you have every reason to wonder, hmm, do I have have five to 12? Am I in Christ? Because those of us in Christ have an expectation. You give your life to Christ, you're left on this planet first period of time only God knows in providence and his sovereignty and you're here to do two things retard decay and push back the darkness and in that you're proclaiming Christ the excellencies of of Christ right you're strategically placed here your strategic lights and your strategic salt and we're to shine his lights in a dark world do you remember the lampstands in Revelation, Bob, did you go through the whole book of Revelation? Just pieces, just the good stuff. Sheesh. Well, if you were to go to Revelation 2 and 3, it talks about these seven churches of Asia Minor. You'll search in vain to find one in existence today. And what did he say? If you abandon this, he said, I'll do what? Remember? He said, I'll blow out your lampstand. Right? There's church planting, Rechurch revitalization, and there's also church pruning when God says, enough. Your witness is so unimpactful in your community, lights out. And there's seven of those recorded in scripture. We're nowhere near that. I'm just saying, like, that's how serious it is about being light and, and salt. So I ask you the question, as we transition to a, a bit of application, are you a salty, well-lit Christian? Are we a salty, well-lit church? We want to be that spiritually rugged church as we saw demonstrated in the life of Job. We want to be the loving church as 1 Corinthians 13 says. And now here, are we the well-lit, salty church? Are we feeling the expectation? Are we living on mission as a church? Well, let me give you a couple practical ways you can do it. So if you feel a little desalination, and we all do at times, and you need a little resalty, 
you know, you're, you're a little, you got a little too much gypsum in the old soul. That's okay. Or, you know, you're, you're running the pen light. Still lights on. Just not, you know, you're not lighting up the backyard, right? Coyotes are coming through, wolves, bears in your backyard because you just, no light. All right. So let's get off the sidelines and let's get on the field. What does it mean to get on the field? How do we get better at this? I'll give you three things to do. Number one, build a note or use a note card, however you like to do that, a note on your phone or a note card. Pick three to five people you're praying for that you could be salt and light to. I have them. I've told you about my neighbor, Dennis. Hope he doesn't hear this. But, um, actually, I hope he does now. But uh, you should have three to five. You have, may have more. You may have 10. Some of you got property. You know, you're, you're living in this valley. You got property. Go find an old tree and start carving in that old, that old river oak. You know, start writing their names in and then cross them off as you get to witness to them and share the gospel. You know, whatever that is, three by five card, note, carve a tree, Whatever that is, get three to five people and keep it in front of you. Put it in your car, put it in your bathroom, put it where you can see it and say, God, I'm asking you to open the door for me to share the gospel and be salt and light to these three to five people, okay? So intentionality, we're gonna actually take a step in the right direction, getting on the field, and then you're gonna look for opportunities, right? So that means, like, if you're praying for, for, for Nick, and you run into Nick, you're probably going to say, hey, Nick, why don't you guys come over for a barbecue? We got a fresh watermelon and one of those German bratwurst thingies. They're so good. You come on over. Well, I don't eat bread. I'm gluten-free. Well, we'll go without the bun. Just have sauerkraut and mustard, right? You have them over, and you immediately you're in the conversation with them. So start there. Number two, get around unbelievers. Get around unbelievers. There was an error in the church, and it was a good instinct kind of run amok though when we started putting bowling alleys in churches and roller skating rinks and basketball court I mean it's crazy you probably have a gym too like everybody did it and we kind of it went kind of through the budget process and passed the elders as evangelism you know and what happens we expect the world to come to the church it doesn't work that way it says go to them right so don't look for a Christian barber look for a crazy barber don't look for a Christian coffee shop. Go to a crazy coffee shop and witness to them and share Christ and be light and salt. Don't go to a Christian dry cleaner and a Christian donut shop and a Christian bagel shop and a Christian burrito shop. Is there any other shops in town? You know, go to the gas station across the street. Every soon as you leave here, get your Coke there, you know, and let's share Christ and be salt and light. So I think this, get around unbelievers. Ask yourself, am I hanging out with unbelievers? You need to be hanging out with unbelievers. Not to be like the unbelievers, but to to share the gospel with them, to be salt and light. And many of you work in a context, you can't be working with all believers, so you're gonna have that opportunity as well, right? Third, know the gospel. Refresh yourself. We were joking yesterday, but Bob and I were rifting back and forth about EE. Remember EE, the two big questions? You remember evangelism explosion? DJ Kennedy, Florida. Remember EE? Anybody remember? Oh, yes, ma'am. Thank you. I guarantee I could ask her those two questions. I'm not going to put her on the spot, but she would be able to answer that. But the, it's just a great tool. Like, it's just, they're just tools. But make sure you know the gospel and you're ready to share the gospel. And you don't have to know everything. You don't have to know everything about it. You just know, I once was lost and now I'm saved, you know. And the power of the gospel does that. 
But, but there's something to readiness, right? First Peter 3, 5, be ready for the occasion to share the gospel, to defend the faith, right? One more. This is the bonus round. Go on a short-term mission trip if you're able. You should go on a short-term mission trip. I'm looking at a lot of young people. You need to go. If you want to go to Africa, I can send you to a village in Africa next summer as an intern. You show up. Let's rock and roll. Like, let's get on it. Like, let's get out of their backyard and get serious, right? You know? And so let's go. You know? And, 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 and go on a short-term mission trip when there's one available. You know, maybe we need to create that for, for next summer. Here's the point. Start somewhere. Start today. Proverbs 11.30. Again, he that wins souls is wise. It is my prayer for you. I hope it's now your prayer too that we would all be salty, well-lit believers. Salty, well-lit church. When people come here, we, that's why we love visitors. That's why we love guests, right? We don't know where they're coming from. We don't know where they're at. That's, what, that's why the faith, Christians love outsiders because we get to share the gospel with them. And simply put, you can leave here today and go, I know why I'm here. I know my raison d'etre. I see some junior high boys. You know why you're here? Be salt and light. You go to school, you're to be salt and light. You're at home, you're salt and light. You know? It's just part of the deal. If you're not, for, by chance, you're not a Christian, well, let me encourage you to repent and believe on the light of the world which is reflected in this passage. And trust Christ. Fall on the mercies of God and cry out for mercy and say, God, save me as a sinner. I've, been, I've grown up in the church. I've been around this place for 40 years, right? I don't know your spiritual condition, but I sure do want to give you a well-meant offer of the gospel. Again, let's read it together. You are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its flavor, its profile, its taste, its effectiveness, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled on the dusty streets of Palestine. Mm, You're also the light of the world. A cool city, brilliantly lit on a hill. It can't be hidden. You can see it from miles away. Nor do people light a lamp and have you come over for dinner at one of those bratwurst and they put the light under a basket. But no, they put it on a stand and it gives light to the whole house. In the same way, just like that, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let's pray together. Lord, we're grateful for the clarity in this passage. Lord, help us to slow the decay. We feel it all around us and help us to be the salt of the world that preserves it, that calls for truth and calls for honoring God. Lord, help us also to push back darkness in our communities, in our homes, around our kids, whatever we can do. Lord, help us to engage, to get off the sidelines with evangelism and and get on the field and and tussle um, with this dark world that we live in. We're so grateful to be called to this. We can't believe it. It's mind-blowing. We're so grateful for it. Like, to, that, that we're plan A 
just like these 12 men who received this first sermon, here we're receiving it here in 2023 and it's our responsibility as well. So we're grateful for that. Thank you for this community of believers, their strength, how they're growing in grace, how they love your word. Lord, I pray that um, we would fulfill our responsibility um, to being in Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.